Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Today, I'm going to be reading um, Romans uh, Romans 5, 1 verse 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. morning church. My name is Dave and I serve on staff here at Upper Room and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Glad that you're here. Thanks Thomas for reading through Romans chapter 5. As Melissa mentioned at the beginning of our service, we have been working for the last couple of weeks through a series called Liar Liar which is all about the truth about evil and ways to overcome it. So this past week, I, I find myself talking with a couple, I, I'm assuming actually, sorry, the junior highs are dismissed. I think that's what's happening. Or there's just a, a rebellion against what we're preaching on. Okay. It's okay. As long as it's just people 12 and under or whatever. As um, <clears throat> I was having a conversation earlier this week with a, a number of friends who all happen to serve in full-time ministry. And uh, I was talking about, uh, I brought up that we were talking about, you know, the truth about evil and ways to overcome it. And as our conversation uh, went along, we ended up kind of um, talking about some people that we've known. So this group of guys, actually, we've all been like really close best friends for like about 10 or 12 years. Um, It's just kind of cool that we all get to serve in ministry in various places. And so we started talking about people that we've known over the years that have, for one reason or another, um, had... Um, made a decision to either walk away from their faith or people that we had interacted with that were very hesitant and didn't want to come to a point of putting their faith in Jesus. And so we started talking about this and saying, well, what are some of the reasons that cause people to get to this point of either walking away or what holds them back? And one thing we recognize is that there seems to be, and generally speaking, a number of these conversations got to the point where people said, I can't see how God is actually good and so I, that's actually what holds me up from being able to trust him or being able to follow him. God is not good. 
And there was a number of different ideas and reasons that kind of came up in the things that we spoke about. One of them, and this is a common one that we hear about very often, is suffering in the world. If God uh, is good and if he loves his people that he created, then why, does he, why doesn't he intervene, I should say? Why doesn't he intervene when there's you know, sickness and, and famine and uh, natural disasters? Like, where is he? If he's good, why doesn't he stop the stuff that isn't? Another one was that people would say, well, one of the reasons I can't see that God is good is because the people who claim to follow him, Christians, they're not good. And so if, if, if they treat me a certain way, then it's like monkey see, monkey do, follow the leader. They're only acting that way because they follow a God that has maybe told them to live this way. What do we mean by that? Well, another reason that came up was that there's this view of God that he is this vengeful and angry, just wrath-filled, anger-filled judge who's just ready to slam down the gavel in condemnation. And one of the reasons we saw people coming to that conclusion is because of the people who follow Jesus that have acted in such a way. God is not good. He's not actually out to help us. He's just condemning and making life so difficult for us. Others would say, uh, you know, God is actually like this kind of moral, hypocritical, moral monster. Who, who tells his followers or tells people, if you read in his book, the Bible, he'll say, here's how you ought to act. You need to love and you need to care for people. But then actually, as you read through parts of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, you see things where you would actually really call into question whether or not anyone's holding God accountable for how he seems to operate. He has very strong conditions, it seems, for his people, but who's holding him accountable? That doesn't look like somebody who's good. And others said, well, he is like this megalomaniac, self-centered, doesn't actually care about people. He doesn't actually care about others. He's only concerned about having more people turn to worship him. He's a selfish God. He's not a loving God, and he's not a good God. Now, these are a lot of big, significant issues and topics that deserve lots of time to talk about. But one thing we notice too as we continue talking, and maybe this is true for you in your own life, is that it's not so often that people get to a point of saying, God is not good, period. Like, God is not good, full stop. But rather, there's this process of wrestling with whether or not God is good. I mean, some people wrestle with whether God is good before they even get to the point of wrestling with God is real. Other people get hung up on this whether or not God is real. There's nothing even to consider because if he's not real, who cares? But, but it, again, it doesn't seem like people get to this point of just full stop, completely shutting it down, saying, I, I, I don't believe that he is good anymore. But rather, it's actually this, this process of wondering whether or not maybe he was at one point good, but he changed and he's not anymore. Or some people, maybe in this room, there's people of faith, people following Jesus, right? And you're saying, I, I, I do believe that God is good, but, but I'm actually starting to wonder about this because if he is good, then why would he allow that type of sickness to come into my life and completely change the trajectory of how I was living? Or if God is good or was good, then why did he allow my dad to walk out on our family when I was a kid? Like, why didn't he stop that in his goodness and saying that he's good to us and providing for us and loving us? Why doesn't he stop that? I wonder if, if maybe he is not good or if he is or if he isn't. Why does it seem like I have more bad days than I have good days? If, if God is good and he's for us and not against us, then why does it seem like it's constantly an uphill battle? And we sing the songs and hear the stories of him coming down to us, but wow, it feels so much more like I have to put this. Is God actually good? Becomes a big question that we start to ask. 
And as relevant as this question is for us today, in 2019, this is actually not a new question at all. It's not a new wondering at all. It's not a new idea or thought where people are having to consider whether or not God is good. This is actually goes all the way back to the beginning of, of human time where we can see that individuals were wrestling with this question. And sometimes these questions in our own lives can be left unresolved where they do lead to a point of, 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 of either walking away or living with you know, these unresolved questions that we can't completely answer. But if we actually take a look at the broader story of Scripture, we can see there's actually a way that God repeatedly proves His goodness. And again, back to the beginning of the story of humanity, back to the beginning of the story that we see in Scripture. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we, we find ourselves in the book of Genesis. Genesis actually means beginning, right? And so this is telling us the creation account. And one thing we're told right away is that there's this being who's God who is powerful enough that all he needs to do is, is talk and think, and the things that he talks and the things that he thinks come into existence, right? And so if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, it says, and God said, let there be, and whatever he said, let there be, there be. Those things were there. And after he creates a number of things, everything he creates, he says, it is good. Then he creates, it is good. And then he creates, it is good. Then he creates, it is good. And then on the last day of the creation story, we see that he creates man and woman. And when he creates man and woman and he puts them together, he says, this is very good. And so what we actually see right from the beginning is you've got this good God who is creating things. And as a result of him being good, everything that he creates is also good. And, and in so many ways, God demonstrates and reveals his goodness, makes it so palpable around them. He makes his goodness known to them that they live in this perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden where they have absolutely everything they need. And God does a number of things to prove his goodness to them. He puts them in charge of the livestock. He puts them in charge of the garden. Well, what's he doing there? Just giving them something to keep them busy? No, he's giving them purpose. He's giving them a reason to live. This is what they're made to do. They're living out their purpose. He gives them an abundant amount of trees and plants to eat from. He says, like, this is, this is his sustenance. He is sustaining them. He's giving them the food that they need. That's a demonstration of his goodness. Um, he blesses them as a gift to one another for, for relationship, for companionship, for intimacy. Uh, and they live in perfect harmony and perfect peace with one another, Adam and Eve do. He gives them the gift of relational harmony. He's good to them. And actually, on top of all this, God gives himself to them with full, complete, and total access. So you have a good God who creates good things, creating a good environment, a perfect environment. And what exists there is not him packing up and, and walking away and saying, well, job well done, but rather making himself continually available. And actually parts of scripture say that he walks around in the garden with them, having this type of way of connecting with this closeness of God that's just beautiful and amazing. And there's a word that uh, the ancients used to use to explain this type of completeness, this type of wholeness. And the word is shalom. You may have heard the word shalom before. It, it can be translated as peace. Sometimes we hear it used as a greeting to say hello or to say goodbye, shalom, as a blessing to one another. But, but really what it is is this picture of how God created all the, the world to be in relationship to him and to one another. And it's this picture of love being poured out. There's just access to all sorts of love everywhere. It's gracious provision. It's, it's that there's no shame 
existing where there's completeness, where there's this shalom, where there's this wholeness. And it's God's glory being revealed. This is, this is all access to God. No barriers. No barriers from us to him or him to us. This is what exists. And there's this perfect harmony. There's this perfect peace. There's this perfect completeness. There's wholeness. Everything is doing exactly what God had made and intended it to do. There is shalom. But then, shalom gets broken. And it gets broken as the result of two people believing the lie that God is not good. See, because as the story continues, we're actually introduced to a serpent. And the serpent comes on the scene and starts up a dialogue with Eve in the garden one day. And he says, the serpent says, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responds to the serpent and says, well, okay, he says, well, he said we may eat from the tree, uh, from the fruit in the garden. We may, eat tr- we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will surely die. So Eve has been in this perfect shalom, good relationship with her good God, has an understanding of a boundary that was put up around a particular tree, but they were given all sorts of other food to eat, far more than enough that they, than they needed. And the enemy, the serpent, comes in and he says, well, did God really say this? And he calls it into question. And now what's interesting about Eve's response is that Eve responds by saying, she shall, uh, God also said we shall not touch it. That, that's not true. God didn't say anything about touching the tree. You could look at the tree, you could touch the tree, you just couldn't eat the fruit from the tree. It's in Genesis chapter 2. It says, don't do that. If you do, then you will surely die. Like, you will certainly die. This is what's going on. So, it's interesting that Eve's response to Satan's question, right? Is it true that he said you must not eat from any of the tree in the garden? She now answers it, but adds this extra piece in, which almost as if the enemy is putting his finger right on something that perhaps her and and Adam were already thinking about. Now, I'm not suggesting that Adam and Eve were already thinking about um, eating from this tree, rebelling against God, going against this boundary on their own. But what I am saying is like, come on, put yourself in the garden and you can eat from every tree except for this one tree. Would you not be thinking about that tree? Like, what's the deal with this tree? Why all those trees and not this tree? What, why the boundary? Well, this is when the serpent decides to lie. You will not surely die. Rather, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, you're not going to die. It's just that God is holding out on you. He's not as good as you think he is. You think he, he says he's given you purpose and you think that he's given you provision, but actually he's holding out on you. There's stuff that he doesn't want for you to have. And that's why he put this restriction. That's not a good God, if he was good, wouldn't he give you the freedom and all access to every single thing? Really, what's happening here is not a conversation about food. It's actually a questioning about whether or not God is good, but whether or not God is trustworthy. Ultimately, Adam and Eve believe the lie that, this, that they're not going to die that for some reason, they believe this lie that, that God is not good, that he had been holding out on them, and they eat the, from uh, that, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and the consequences, the fallout as the result of this sin, 
as a result of this rebellion, as the result of believing this lie, like the fallout is tremendous. And here's what happens. Immediately they become aware of their nakedness and they're ashamed of their nakedness. And so they cover themselves up and they cover themselves up with leaves. Shame has entered a world that had no shame in it. They try to hide themselves from God. God comes walking in the garden. He says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And they're like hiding from him. They're actually hiding from him, which means that now secrecy and deception and a need to actually hide what is true has entered in the world, which before eating of that tree was not there. When they're questioned by God about what happened, Adam's response is to throw Eve under the bus. He says, well, it was the woman that you gave me. Blame now comes into the world. Where there was harmony, where there was love, where there would have been sacrifice, where there would have been defense and of all these things for the sake of love, now there's like, it was your fault, God. You gave the, it's actually not Eve's fault. You're the one who gave me Eve. So actually, if you follow the paper trail, it comes all the way back to you. It's actually your fault. He's not able to take blame. The harmonious relationship is broken. And ultimately, shalom is broken. This peace, this harmony, this completeness, this wholeness, it's broken. And so we look at this and we see, okay, God was good in the beginning and he created all that was good, but then in this uh, act of disobedience, how is God going to act? How is he going to respond? And his actions to what took place actually give us a big, a big, beautiful picture of just how good he is because we can see what happens. First of all, the first thing he does is he curses the snake. And, and actually, what we, what we see in the broader story of Scripture is that this snake is actually Satan, the enemy of God, the primeval enemy of God, disguising himself as a serpent. And so God curses the serpent, and he says, you are going to crawl on your belly, and you're going to be different than every other animal, and that you're going to crawl like that. But as he's giving the, the consequences for the action of what the snake did, he also says in that, that one day your head will be crushed. It's not just that a snake is going to have its head crushed, but basically God is saying in his initial immediate response to evil that has come into the world, you, the one who brought the temptation into the world that ended up leading to evil coming into the world, through this lie, your head will be crushed. Your days are numbered. And he turns to Adam and Eve. What he does is he explains to them the consequences of breaking shalom. Here's what the result is. Because you did this, here's what you are going to be left with. He talks about how their lives now are going to be um, filled with pain and filled with strife. And things that were once total joy are now going to be a, a, a burden to you. This is part of the consequences. When you live in the completeness and the wholeness of how I've made, it to, I made you to be, this is what you, how it would be. You'd have that fullness. But now that you've walked away from that, now you're going to see the consequences, which are pain and work and strife and, and burden. Then the next thing God does is he sacrifices an animal and takes the skin from the animal and covers up Adam and Eve's nakedness. Now remember, the first thing that they did when they were rare, became aware of their, their nakedness and shame is they covered themselves. But God is saying, no, no, your own efforts to cover your own shame is not sufficient. In order for your shame to be properly covered, I'm actually going to have to sacrifice, shed the blood of another animal, another creature to properly cover up your shame. God does the thing to more properly and effectively cover their shame. This is how God is responding. And actually in all of this, as, a, as an example of God's goodness, is he's merciful to them. Because he said, if you eat from this tree you'll certainly die. They didn't drop dead when this happened. Now, they died a spiritual death, absolutely, 
And if you've been working through the Romans reading plan uh, with us throughout and reading through the blogs week by week, you've seen through the book of Romans how the Apostle Paul explains what it means, how death came into the world through one man, Adam, but how life comes through one man, Jesus. You've seen some of these themes. So, so yes, death came in, but not that they didn't drop dead in that moment, but rather God says to them what, what would have been an eternal full, flourishing, thriving life of shalom, of completeness, of peace, of wholeness, now there's going to be a limit on that. And there will come a day where you actually will physically die, and there's also this spiritual death. But that's still an example of God's mercy and goodness. This is what happens when we reject God. When we reject God, we break shalom, which is breaking the way that we were meant to live. And and this ultimately becomes the story of the Old Testament. As you read the story of the Old Testament and you read through the the life of the people of God, the Israelite people, you see that this constant, constant narrative, this constant repeating storyline of God showing himself over and over again to be their good God as he provides for them, as he works miracles before them, as he protects them, as he leads them out of slavery, as he does these things, he's saying over and over again, I am good, I am good, but there's this, their response is constantly, we're not so sure. We're not so sure if you're actually good enough. We're not so sure if you're actually sufficient enough. We're not sure if you actually have given us everything that we need. And it's this constant back and forth. God constantly revealing himself as a good God to them and promising to be their God. And and them still constantly worrying about this. And he had said, basically what God says in his response, as he explains uh, to the serpent, as he explains to to Adam and Eve the consequences for breaking shalom, what he's doing in this process, he's not punishing and casting out judgment, but rather he's explaining the way that he is ultimately going to be the one who fixes shalom once and for all. And, and that storyline plays in and out and over and over again, and we still today sometimes feel like I don't think or I don't know if shalom has actually been restored yet, if it's actually been fixed. And whether or not it has or it hasn't, even before we get to knowing that, we actually have this wondering, well, what if I don't believe God is good? What, what, does that, what consequences will there be in my life if I don't believe God is good? Right? Just like Adam and Eve had to wrestle with that, perhaps you're wrestling with it yourself. And I mean, one of the ways I think that this gets applied is if we don't think God is good, then why would we bother going to Him for anything? Right? We, we turn out not, we, we end up not trusting Him or, or not praying to Him or not asking Him for direction. If, if God is not good, then He's definitely not looking out for me. I better look out for myself, which drives us into selfishness which drives us into cut, blazing our own trail, which drives us into uh, not a need for uh, this self-reliance, which means we don't need to rely on him or anyone else. We start to blame others. If God is not good, like if he is, this is what he's responsible for, then actually I'm going to blame God for the things that happen to me. And I'm going to blame others for the things that go on in my life. I, I need to, if God is not going to be good to me and preserve me, then I need to preserve myself. If I'm going to feel shame now that's in the world, I need to cover myself, make sure at least I look good and feel good. I've got to be worrying about myself because if he's not good, who else is going to look out for me like that? If we don't believe that God is good, if we, if, we, if we believe a lie that he's not good, that he's holding out on us or that he's out to get us actually, then we're going to be filled with bitterness and anger and resentment and we're going to take this out on everyone else because we won't be able to understand that there's a possible way that God could have actually meant what is bad to turn out for good later on. But if we don't think he's good, we won't even bother with him at all. So the first lie <clears throat> that was ever believed was this lie 
that God is not good. And from that lie has stemmed every other lie and every other false belief that has ever been told, ever been believed, ever been exchanged for the truth. That's where it stems from. The story of Scripture doesn't finish there. It continues. And what we see is that God, in His own timing, chooses to do what is necessary once and for all, almost like the exclamation point on His promise to be a good God who is going to be the one who fixes the shalom that we broke. And this is what was read for us a few minutes ago from Romans chapter 5. We fast forward, right? I mean, what we're reading there in in Genesis is quite a while ago in history, but now we fast forward to to Romans chapter 5, and the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome about 60 years after the death of Jesus, just for the sake of a bit of timeline. And as he's writing to this church, he's explaining to them a number of things that they can think about theologically, a number of things they ought to understand and know about who God is and his fullness, about how Jesus has done the things to to, to fulfill and complete the plan of God the Father, and how the Holy Spirit is actually present and now working within us individually and at large around the world. And as he's doing this, the Apostle Paul is telling them what their identity is, who they are as a group of people, as a church, who, the, what their spiritual, uh, who they are as spiritual beings. He's explaining to them and saying, this is who you are. This is how he explains it in, in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, or writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. There's a few words or phrases up there that are highlight or emphasized for you, right? So one of them we see early on in verse 1 is peace. This word is not like tranquility. It's not like peace, man. This word is shalom, actually. This word is wholeness. This word is completeness. This word is fulfillment. It talks about the access we have to God, right? The, by, we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Grace, God's generous giving of himself to us and providing for our every need, physical, spiritual, otherwise. It talks about the understanding we hope in the glory of God. We have hope in the glory of God. That's, that's access, unbarriered, unblocked access to who God is, is made available. It talks about how we are not put to shame in any situation, even suffering. We won't be put to shame in that because we know who we are because of what God has done. And this feels like the experience of this is what God has done is poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us, the Holy Spirit being God, God's presence with us. Do you notice something here? Paul is using garden language. Paul is referring to all of the things that were broken in the garden when Shalom was broken. He's saying, this is who you are, which, by the way, is another thing worth noting. This is a present tense thing he's telling them. This is not who you want to be, though it is who they want it to be. This is not who you can be, though it is who you can be. This is not just um, what would be an amazing idea, but rather what he's saying is, 
This is actually who you are when you trust, when you follow, when you receive the goodness of Jesus. This is what happens to you. All of the things you experienced as the consequences of breaking shalom go into this process of being restored, of being brought back to fullness, brought back to completeness. And he continues. How how is this possible? It's like a good question, right? How is this possible? He explains 5, verse 6, 7, and 8. You see at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In his goodness, the God who's always been good, the one who created as a good God, the one who said at the moment shalom was broken, I'm going to continue to be good to do what is necessary to fix the shalom that you break is being explained to us right now how he made this possible, how it came to be. This is the crushing of the serpent's head. This is the thing that was needed to be done to stop the force of evil. And yes, right now we live in this tension of now and not yet, right? Where there is this, yes, Jesus has by his death, through his death, conquered um, Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, defeated the effects of Satan and the evil that he brings into the world. He's defeated it. But we're still in this place of waiting because we, the world is not entirely all brought back to shalom. We begin to feel this one at a time, individually, and then congregationally, but around the world, it's not there yet. And we know this tension. We see these moments where there's wholeness, where there's completeness, where there's goodness. And then we have these other moments where we see, ah, this is not how it's meant to be. We are living in that tension. As far as an identity for those of us in faith, this is as true, but we still live in this broken world where it hasn't been completely put back together. But this is, this is the the thing that crushed the head of the serpent. This is the sacrifice that covers the shame of people. Just like God sacrificed an animal, here his son is sacrificed, his blood is shed, his body is given up. That, what w- that is what was needed to cover up our own shame and our own sin, the own things that separated us from God, the consequences of shalom. Jesus literally dies in the place as a substitute for those of us who are not good. Jesus, who is good, dies in the place for those of us who are not good. And I love how Paul explains this, right? He's just so real about it. He's like, you get this. If, if you're in a situation where you're with, you know, and he actually he's using war, war analogy, like a battlefield analogy. He's saying if you're out in the battle and there's a good person uh, with you or, or a, another countryman with you, of course, if they're a good person, you, you're going to give your life for them. You're going to give your life for your country. And maybe we're not thinking in, in our own lives about this, but we think like, yeah, I would take a bullet for my, for my kids or for my spouse or for my mom or for my grandma or for somebody. I would do that. And, but yet, it might even come, Paul is kind of getting it, it still might come with a little bit of hesitation. Right? It's like, ah, they're pretty good. I love them. But like, I still have to decide whether or not I'm going to put my life in front of theirs. So Paul's saying we already have this tension with a good person, but for somebody who's not good, you, you would be getting out of the way. Like you'd be running out of the way, right? You would say, I'm not going to take a bullet for somebody who I don't think is good, somebody who's an enemy. I'm not going to take a bullet or get stabbed or have my head cut off using the wartime analogy that they would have for the other team. Like not a chance. That's the point. That's exactly the point. Jesus does die in our place. We're the enemies. We're the ones who are opposed to him. He says, while we were still sinners, 
while we were still not only living in the consequences of broken shalom, but while we were actually enabling those things to be made widespread around the world. We were continuing on in our rebellion. It's not just rebellion that happened back then, Adam and Eve. It's rebellion that still continues to go on right in the middle of it. God says, I am going to send my son to die in their place. And Jesus does this voluntarily, taking on the consequences of of death that he did not deserve to live. And in doing so, he brings in what is necessary to fix all that was broken once and for all. We're not able to do this on our own. We're helpless. We can't bring ourselves back to physical life on our own, nor can we do that in any spiritual way either. But this is the goodness of God. The fullness of the goodness of God is we broke shalom, and he does what is necessary to fix it and put it back together, to restore us back to wholeness. And and this is true for anyone who's received this truth about who Jesus is. So in a couple minutes, actually, Tony's going to come and he's going to talk through what communion is all about. Why is there plates of bread and why are there glasses of juice up there? And he'll, he's going to kind of tell us about this, exa- this being something that gives us a, a tangible way of remembering the thing that Jesus went through in our behalf. And so when we receive these things by faith, right then and there, we begin to experience the renewal of shalom in our life the restoration of shalom in our life. Our access to God, our, our, our peace with God, our shalom with God is re, like restored, reinstated. And that begins to flow out on this outward level as well as we interact with other people. And so I want us to remember today that God is good because he always actually has been. And he's never given up being the good God that he always said he would be. Even in the midst of all of the bad that we can be and we are, he continues to be good to us. So as a response to this, I think, I mean, we're going to go into communion in just a minute, but I want to give you something, a tool that you can use even this week uh, as you head back into the week. And, one, and I think that it's just a prayer. It's a prayer about seeing the goodness of God. And so it's this simple line. It's, it's not prove to me, it's help me see. It's not prove to me that you're good, it's help me see all the ways that you're good. I'm not, I'm not asking you to go out and dare God or put God to the test and say, yeah, if you're good, then you better, then you show me all the green lights all the way. No, it's not that. It's saying, it's not proof to me that you're good. I, I believe you are. So give me the eyes to see the ways that you are good, the things that you're doing around me. It's not proof to me that you said you were going to fix shalom. It's Show me the ways that you are fixing shalom in my life, in the lives of others, in our church, around our world. So I'm going to invite Tony to come on over, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come and get in their spot as well. And God is good, because he always has been. This is his very character. He's so much more committed to us than we ever are to him. And communion is a beautiful reminder of how that works.